Informed Dissent, the intersection of healthcare and politics, with Dr. Jeff Barkey, board-certified primary care physician, and Dr. Mark McDonald, board-certified child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist. Well, welcome to another episode of Informed Dissent. Um, great to be with you, Mark. Hello. And uh, welcome back. I think you were just away and coming back. I can't keep track of where you are. But as a reminder, Informed Dissent is now available on all podcast medias outlets, including Apple Podcast and Spotify. So great to be with you. You know, listen, we were bantering about before we went live with this podcast, and there's a lot of stuff going on and a lot of anger and a lot of frustration with uh, what's going on in our country. CDC guidelines just came out, new guidelines that are basically uh, what we knew all along, that um, testing asymptomatic people is ridiculous, that social distancing is not actually a thing, and that treating vaccinated and unvaccinated people the same makes a lot of sense because it's not actually a vaccine and it doesn't actually work. But besides that, it's uh, created six new billionaires in the vaccine industry, uh, and it neither stops transmission or stops infection. But besides that, it's a wonderful product. So welcome back, Mark. Great to be with you. I'm not uh, one of those six billionaires either, by the way, just as a caveat. No. And speaking of billionaires, we are looking and we've got some great opportunities for sponsorship for our program. We love doing this. We've been doing it for about a year. We've got some great guests that come on. Uh, It does cost some money. We've got producers and bookers and all kinds of people helping us. And the technology is wonderful and we're glad to bring it to you. It does cost us some uh, money and we'd love to uh, get some sponsorship and some advertising. We get about 500,000 downloads. So we got quite a wide audience, mostly in the United States, but even around uh, even around the world. Um, so anybody out there who's listening, call on up and uh, you can get us through Informed Dissent Media and uh, Beth will reach out to you and we'd love to have you on as a sponsor. 500,000 views, that's gotta be worth something. Something, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, what I wanted to talk to you about tonight, Mark, is you've got your follow-up book uh, coming out, and I think it's a really important book because it's not about um, describing the problem. It's really about describing the solution, and your new book is going to be called Freedom from Fear, A 12-Step Guide to Personal and National Recovery, and I think it, uh, I think we need this right now in our history, in our country. Uh, because I still see people driving with masks on alone in the car, walking their dog by themselves with masks on. Uh, kids are now getting back to school. And despite the fact that many schools have dropped the mask mandates, parents continue to send their kids to school with masks. And most disturbing to me is this push now to vaccinate young children against COVID. As a matter of fact, <clears throat> I'm going to be a, um expert witness uh, for a mom who's fighting a custody battle with her husband. And the custody battle is all about vaccinating the child. Dad wants the kid vaccinated. It's a 12-year-old. Mom doesn't want the kid vaccinated for obvious reasons. And we're going to be going before a judge and arguing the case. The case basically is that uh, this is a healthy kid. He's not at risk of COVID. There's a 0% chance of mortality if a young child gets COVID. Uh, It makes no sense to vaccinate a kid against an illness that they're not at risk using an investigational product that has no long-term safety studies. I don't know why this is complicated. It really doesn't make sense to me, yet parents are still 
pushing this out on their children. Schools are doing that. Some schools are even setting up vaccine clinics uh, in their schools. And in Orange County, we're really fighting against that. But thank God, right about now, just when we need you, Back to School is, uh, is a book about how to overcome this national crisis of fear. So Mark, tell us a little bit about this book, Freedom from Fear, a 12-step guide to personal and national recovery. Jeff, it really isn't complicated. The problem is psychological. This is not a medical problem. It's not a medical debate. It's one that I am well accustomed to and well versed in, which is psychiatric. From the very beginning, we've been in a pandemic of fear. This has not been a medical crisis. It's been a psychological one. We have been largely brainwashed and lied to for two and a half years. And after extensive and repeated and chronic lies, chronic fear, we have been traumatized as a nation. And many, many Americans are now not just fearful, they are addicted to fear. Fear has become the new drug. And as my editor said, unbeknownst to me, I wrote a line just off the cuff, which he found to be very important. And as I look back on that line and his comments, I realize how important this was, even though at the time I just thought it was kind of obvious. And it's the following. Since 2020, our social norms have been redefined. And they've been redefined by the most fearful among us and not the most courageous. So, so talk a little bit about that. Social norms, first define, what does that mean? What's a social norm? So what I consider a social norm, it's not a legal norm. It's not a law. We don't have new laws telling people to wear masks, to get shots, to stay anti-socially distanced, to close their businesses, to remain in their homes and do Zoom happy hour. The laws are gone. And I said for a long time, this is not going to be a legal issue because there is no legal constitutional foundation for this form of tyranny. And I knew that it would end at some point, and it has. What's happened, though, is something a little more subtle. It's, it's much more insidious than that. It's actually a social norm. It's an accepted convention that we have collectively agreed upon as healthy and normal. That is to be expected. Three years ago, if you saw someone, as you just described a few minutes ago, riding his bicycle or jogging or driving, with a mask on his face, you and everyone else around would have looked at him and said, there's something wrong with this person. This person is messed up. Perhaps if we know him, we need to talk to him. Maybe we need to get him counseling. Maybe he needs to go to a psychiatric hospital. Now when we see that, most of us don't even think twice about it. Most of us just say, yeah, that's normal. He's just being safe. Well, some of us still think twice about it. (laughs) (laughs) Those of us who are rational and have not been brainwashed do think, That's pretty messed up. But about 50 to 60% of the population, I would say in most urban areas, I live in Los Angeles, as you know, I would say about 80% of those in Los Angeles, they don't even blink when they see that. I don't even think they think about what they see when they see that. They just take it for granted. Just like somebody walking down the the street with a, a shirt and shorts on. Well, that's just, you know, that's just normal dress. If the person's naked, you're going to think, well, there's something a little odd there. So someone wearing a mask who's naked probably would pass. But if he doesn't have a mask on, he's naked. Oh, there's a little bit strange there. He's exposing himself. He's an exhibitionist. But if you're wearing a mask, it's perfectly fine. If you're a 24-year-old woman with your girlfriends walking down the street on a Sunday in Los Angeles in 102-degree heat, wearing cut-off dolphin shorts, a halter top, and flip-flops with your boobs hanging out, 
That's completely fine as long as you have a mask on or two or three or four, like I saw last Sunday. So the idea that somehow it's normal, it's socially acceptable, it's not weird or strange or an expression of OCD or addiction or mental illness to be putting a diaper on your face while you're walking through a park, that is what's changed. That's what I mean by a social norm. It's like um, children smoking marijuana now has become normative in a lot of cities. It's not healthy, it's wrong. It's actually in some ways a lot more dangerous than say vaping for a lot of, of psychological and, and medical reasons. But there's very few adults that will criticize people who are engaged in smoking marijuana. It's considered an herb. That's a new social norm. Now, there's a difference between a social norm and what is objectively healthy and what is objectively truthful, what is objectively honest. Those are not the same thing because social norms can be changed very quickly and not with evidence. They're just changed under pressure, under dictate, or in the case of the United States, under repeated conditioning behavioral conditioning in the last few years. And in many cities, urban areas in the United States, Americans have been conditioned for the last two plus years to act in an unhealthy, irrational, and actually quite masochistic and hurtful way. And that has become the new social norm. Just like if we were to, say, adopt the practice in Amsterdam of free drug use and prostitution, the social norm there is that drugs and prostitution are fine. They're not yet that way in most places in the U.S., but they could become that way. So the idea of fear and being afraid and acting as if one were under threat constantly from an invisible microbe, hand washing, sanitation, covering yourself with a mask, staying away from people, not going out to restaurants, that sort of behavior has not, is no longer obsessive compulsive. It is actually normal. And, and that's really what spurred me to write this book. I wanted to address face on, without apology, without hesitation, the shift in social norms in this country and point out to people that what we are considering to be normative is not only not normative, it is actually unhealthy. It is psychologically damaging. It is a psychiatric mental illness and it needs to be addressed and confronted just as somebody who is a drunk, who is addicted to alcohol needs to accept that he's an alcoholic. Americans who are fearful need to accept that they are addicted to fear and they need to do something about it. Well, well stated. I'm going to ask you about what we do about it. But before I do that, I'd like to read the, uh, the blurb that Dr. Peter McCullough, who we've had on our show now three times, wrote about your book. Um, after the United States of Fear, there is a new sheriff in town, Dr. Mark McDonald, who is going straight after, whoops, who's going straight after the problem itself, fear, as if he walked into a saloon, but instead of, row, instead of a row of drunks, all the patrons are addicted to fear and huddled together, joyless and pensive. McDonald shoots bullets of truth around humor and shows us how to be bold, relentless, and fearless in our pursuit to restore normalcy. Now we can constructively and collectively break the addiction of fear and resume life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Dr. Peter McCullough, co-author of Courage to Face COVID-19. I think well stated. So we've identified the problem. You talk about social norms and how far we've come. What do we do about it? Well, the first thing, just as in an AA program or a 12-step program, which is what I model this after with a combination of Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life, is to first acknowledge the fear. You need to acknowledge that you have a problem. 
And many Americans simply won't acknowledge it. There's nothing that you can do with a problem until you acknowledge that you have it. This is one of the, uh, I think, the most important steps in actually solving a problem. And you do this with medical illness. You can't treat an illness unless you can actually offer a diagnosis. Otherwise, you're just going in blind. So that's why social norms is such an important point to start with, because we have to address the fact that social norms or not, being addicted to anything, especially fear, which is an unhealthy emotion to have when it's irrational, is destructive. It's horribly destructive. Many of the people who buy my book are not addicted to fear, but they know people who are, their family members, their friends. And these people are living a life of fear addiction. They will never be able to live their full potential until they overcome this problem. And I, I titled the book or the subtitle of the book as a, a personal and national recovery because this actually has to happen on a personal level. But it's the accumulation, it's the agglomeration of personal experiences of overcoming fear that are going to actually help our nation. Because on a national level, we cannot move forward until we overcome this fear pandemic and this fear addiction. It is not possible to think rationally, to vote rationally, to support policies on a political, economic, or social level unless you can actually address problems in a normal, non-fearful mindset. And if we have 50, 60, 70% of the U.S. population mired in fear addiction, they will even unconsciously start to think and act and support local, state, and national policies that are based upon and driven by fear. And that will never, ever be helpful to themselves, their community, or the country. Absolutely. And here's what Tucker Carlson of Fox News says, quote, I really hope that what you're saying finds a wide audience. I think it's interesting at the very least and potentially amazing at the best. Thank you so much. And I think Tucker is right, and hopefully he'll bring you on to talk about some of these issues. I'd love to be on his show again. He's one example of a fearless and courageous individual. He's been attacked, maligned for almost everything he says, every person he interviews, and he does not care. He wants to speak the truth. He's not always right. I disagree with some of the things that he says, but he is honest. He's accountable. He's accountable to what he says, and he admits when he's made mistakes, and he admits when there's an error. And I wish we had more courageous people like him in this country, because we need courage to fight back against fear. And then Dennis Prager of Salem Radio Network says, quote, he's a delight. He's a remarkable thinker. He's etched in my heart and my mind. Good for Dennis. And hopefully he'll have you back on his show as well. I hope that's the case as well. So first step in 12 step is acknowledging that you have a problem, turning yourself over to a higher power. What else do you recommend from a recovery standpoint for the nation and for individuals? One very important point that I often bring up in my talks is you need to eliminate the drug dealer in your addiction. And in this case, the drug dealer of fear is, by and large, the media. We have a phone that we carry around in our pocket that it gives us alerts and announcements and beeps and likes and hearts and all kinds of little pieces of dopamine pleasure for every little snippet, every little morsel of fear that, that gets put through the device. You can't even shut them off. It's just all day long, constantly. And that's in our pocket. That's something that we carry with us. Think about the car. Think about the television. Think about the computer. Wherever we go, we have these electronics that feed us what we believe to be 
information and news. And none of it is. It's all fear-driven. It's all propaganda. It's almost all entirely lies. So if you are vibrating with anxiety and fear, because every time you turn on your phone, your computer, your TV, you hear about more death, more infection, uh, more reasons to be afraid, more reasons not to leave your house, you have to disconnect. You have to take a hiatus from that. And you have to start going back to basics. You have to start reading printed newspapers or even better magazines. You have to start reading books. You have to start listening to music again. You have to detach yourself from this drug dealer of fear which is constantly feeding your addiction and reinforcing your probably now unconscious belief that life itself is dangerous and you have to do everything everything possible to minimize risk. And you know, as, as Dennis Prager said, and I agree with him fully, he said this repeatedly, life is not meant to be lived on a lengthy, long, multi-year level. Live as long as you possibly can is the goal of life. No, it's not. Life is meant to be lived fully. And that means you have to take risks. And if you're not willing to take risks, you're not going to be able to live fully. And you have to make that choice. So if you can cut out the media, if you can cut out this dealer that I call it, this dealer of fear, that will distance you from some of that reinforcement. And you'll be able to start to accept other experiences in life that are not driven by fear. Things that are driven by relationships, by art, by culture, by intellectual pursuits. And you might actually start to desensitize yourself to it. This is one of the, the game changers that's happened since 2007 when the first iPhone came out. Before that, we didn't have this ability of media to control our feelings. Now we do. And it happens with adults. It happens with young adults. It happens with adolescents. It's now even happening with children. So I strongly urge people, whether they're young or old, and they feel anxious, they feel fearful, cut out the media. Cut out the electronic buzz of fear-driven information. And if you can do that you might actually start to recalibrate. So admit you have a problem, you need to eliminate the problem. So just like an alcoholic has to stop drinking, in this case, a fear-based person has to disconnect them from the source of that fear. And that's mostly the legacy media that, that uh, provides us fear every night uh, in the media, on our cell phone, and everywhere that we want to find it. Um, and then make a decision, what, that they want to live, live their life on a daily basis without fear. So that masked person that we see walking down the street, obviously, they're going to continue to do what they're doing. Now, on an individual basis, I get it. 12-step is really an individual program. You find yourself a sponsor that's been there, done that, and is going to support you. Do we need something like that on a national level, a national leader that sees what has gone on and leads us back to um, uh, more appropriate social norms. Well, I would love to see that happen. I and mean, we had that with Donald Trump. And then, of course, he was, uh, in my view, uh, illegally and unjustly voted out of office on his second term. But I don't think that we can hang our hat on that. I think that we did that in the last election. And I think it was, it was really to our chagrin. Uh, we don't have free and fair elections anymore. Um, those leaders who are powerful, who do have national uh, audiences are maligned, attacked. Uh, I, I would not be surprised if some of these leaders were assassinated by the current administration in the next 12 to 18 months. I think that the left and those who are in power will do absolutely anything at this point to shut down the rise of a national leader who will return our country to freedom, to liberty, to a fearless, courageous nation, because uh, that would shut down 
absolutely all of their quests for, for unilateral power. So as much as I would love to have a nationally based and funded program to help overcome fear, I don't believe that it's realistic to expect that to happen. I think we have to start focusing on an individual and local community level, and I think we have to build up from there. Otherwise, we might end up making the same mistake we did a couple of years ago, uh, where we uh, invested everything we had in one man, one national leader, and he was taken out. Uh, and, and then really we just became kind of a, a group of, of Americans in disarray and you know, sort of wandering around uh, wondering how we get back our, our point on the spear. And I think we're still trying to accomplish that now. Uh, and as we just saw uh, last week with the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago, uh, the Biden administration and its henchmen and lackeys will do absolutely anything to prevent Donald Trump from running for office again. Uh, and I think anyone else, and that concludes DeSantis and, and others, are going to be targets uh, of the administration if they begin to pose a real public threat. So, you know, the AA model is um, once you enter the AA system, you're assigned basically a sponsor, somebody who has gone through it, that understands how difficult it is to maintain sobriety, that works with you to teach you how to live your life sober, and in this case, how to live your life without fear. Do you see a similar model? What I have said for the last year when people have asked me, what do I do? Uh, where do I go? How do I, how do I find a way to survive uh, as, a, as a sole uh, individual in this morass of fear is this. And this also I'm going to give credit to Dennis Prager for because he's the one that first said it, I believe. You need to surround yourself with like-minded people. So if you are a fearful person and you want to become a fearless person, you may not need a mentor like you do in AA, but you do need a community of fearless people. You do need to find others, whether they're physical people in your neighborhood or an online community of people who do not live by fear. And those are the people that are going to show you the example, show you the way of living fearlessly. Because a lot of Americans are living in communities surrounded completely surrounded by those who are addicted to fear. I know that because I live in Los Angeles. I went out to dinner last week on a Wednesday evening. I could not find any restaurants open past 9 p.m. Nowhere. By 9.15, they're stacking up the chairs on the patio. It's 85 degrees outside in the dark. People don't even go out to dinner till 9.30 or 10 in Europe in the summer. And they're out till 2 a.m. And their five-year-olds are playing in the fountain at 3 o'clock in the morning. Los Angeles is shut down at 9 p.m. The bars close at 10. So I found a Turkish restaurant. I went there. The only thing that woman could say was baklava, baklava, baklava. She didn't speak any English, but she was open till midnight. And she had an Irish family friend who was there who also didn't speak English. She spoke something else and she couldn't speak Turkish. So we got two people not communicating, but they were lovely. I sat outside with my Lebanese friend. I had tea and baklava because that was the only thing that we could actually communicate with with this Turkish woman. And we sat out there till midnight talking because it was the only place in L.A. that we could actually sit and eat and drink until late at night. And as I was sitting there, I watched a Japanese restaurant close across the street on Pico and Santa Monica. And they all bowed on their way out and got in their cars and left. One of the workers wearing his uniform, a waiter, clearly, stood outside and paced back and forth in the darkened parking lot. Nobody around for two, three hundred feet. Didn't know what he was doing there. After about five minutes, he stood up and started doing jumping jacks with his mask on. An Asian man with a waiter's uniform and a mask on his face doing jumping jacks at 11 p.m. on a Wednesday night in Los Angeles. 
a new social norm. That is the new social norm. And as people passed him by on the sidewalk, they just looked at him briefly and just kept going like, yeah, yeah, this is normal. Totally normal. Just like seeing people lying on the street with needles in their arms, overdosed on heroin. That's totally normal, too. Well, we're sick if we think that this is normal. So I do not believe that if you are in a city with people like that, that you are going to be able to get out of your fear addiction until you search out and find a community of people who are actually rational and live by healthy social norms, not by this new social norm in L.A., San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, New York, Atlanta, Chicago, basically all of the urban areas in Los Angeles, I'm sorry, in the United States, that are filled with crazy people. There's just no way out. If you're a drunk and you live in a bar, you're not going to be able to find anyone to help you. You have to get out of the bar. You have to go somewhere else. Yeah, no doubt about it. Um, You know, Orange County is a little bit different. We're not quite as crazy as you are in L.A. There are more people that live their life without fear. And there are more restaurants that are open later. Speaking of restaurants, you've got Tony at Basilico's, who now is fighting a battle because his landlord wants to close him down because he doesn't like his politics and that he hung a big giant American flag outside his building and that it was a rallying place for patriots in Orange County, and now they want to shut him down, so he's fighting that fight. But there still are places in Orange County that are open late. Um, You don't see the same level of dysfunction and fear as you do in L.A. County, thank God, partly because we have different leadership here. Uh, We have a constitutional sheriff that doesn't allow some of the shenanigans that we see in L.A. with the homelessness and the needles and the heroin addicts and the defecation on public sidewalks and streets and so forth. And thank goodness for that. So there's less of that going on here in Orange County. But as we work through your book of the 12 steps, what other steps are important that people should know about as to how to recover from this pandemic of fear? Well, one of the important steps, which I I point to towards the end of the book, is I think the the long-term goal, which is, it's not just about you. It's not just about overcoming your own fear. It's not just about uh, the narcissistic focus that most Americans have right now. And I do talk about overcoming narcissism in the book, that other people are important, not just your own needs. But it's about freeing yourself from fear and then becoming a mentor to those who are still fearful. This is something similar or akin to the sponsorship program in AA. When an individual is able to take what he or she has learned from his or her own addiction and then actually help to shepherd other people through the process, now you actually have a multiplicative effect. So it's not just about one or two or three people overcoming fear. It's about those people then shepherding others, three, five, 10, 20, 30, 40 other people who are also suffering from fear. And those people can be an inspiration and can say, look, I was there. I was one of those people that wore a mask on the street. When someone would pass me by on the sidewalk, I'd pull a second mask out and I'd put it on. I would wear three masks in my car. I would stay home and order food. I'd bleach all the boxes because I was afraid that I'd contract a virus. I wouldn't shake hands with people. I slept in separate beds from my wife. I decided not to travel. I started to do Zoom calls instead of using the telephone or going to work. But then I realized that this is not a life worth living and that I was unhealthy and that I was actually making myself emotionally and physically sick by living in this kind of fear addiction. So I worked on it. I overcame it. This is what I did. This is how I can help you. And if we can get more people like that, then we can stop, hopefully, 
this this increasing divide between the rational, which are primarily conservative Americans, and the irrational, which are primarily liberal and leftist Americans. And we can actually see a crossover. We can have a reformation. And some of those self-described liberals who were irrational and have now sort of woken up, they can start pulling people from their camp over to the rational conservative side. And then we can isolate the truly evil and destructive Americans who are the true leftists. And it's a small percentage of Americans who are in that camp. Most Americans are conservative or classically liberal. But the people that are actually on the far left are the ones that are leading the charge to destroy the country. And so I would really like to see the irrational, which are primarily the, the well-meaning but misguided liberals, overcome their fear, become more rational, and then start to recruit people in their camp over to the side of rationality. And then we can hopefully get back to what we had years ago, which was a debate about small changes and small issues in the country, rather than about the foundational values which we've never had a problem with in the past. So, Mark, it almost reminds me of the Blexit movement of, uh, of uh, African-American or black Democrats that have come over to the Republican Party. There's a movement a across the board. Uh, I, I do know former Democrats that have become Republicans because the Democrat Party has gotten so far off stream. You know, there just aren't any more traditional liberals around that similarly, you're, you're asking for irrational, fear-based people uh, to grow a pair and to understand that their fear is not rational and that they should come back over to our side and start living again. Well, I spoke at Children's Health Defense for a fundraiser a couple weeks ago here in L.A., and Naomi Wolf was also speaking. And she's written a book, The Bodies of Others. She's a, a very strident, classical, liberal activist and a feminist, self-described feminist. And some of her views I don't agree with. However, one thing that we do agree on is that the Constitution, freedom and liberty and truth are paramount. She has been entirely shunned by her liberal community. No one will actually allow her to speak. She can only speak on so-called conservative talk shows, media, Tucker Carlson, Dennis Prager, uh, Children's Health Defense with Bobby Kennedy. Those are the only places that will allow her to speak. Well, it's and, just like, um, what, what's the lady's name, former congressman from Hawaii that's uh, on Fox sometimes? With the little silver hair in the front? Yeah, yeah she's name? a um, former military, uh, was it Army? And she became uh, a politician. And now she's been shunned by the Democrat Party. Uh, Tulsi Gabbard. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and she's on Tucker Carlson almost every night. She hosted Tucker last week. Did she host? <laughs> yeah, Tucker was out of town. And last Friday night, she actually hosted. She did a wonderful job. So she filled in for Brian Kilmeade, I guess, who did the other four days. Exactly. So she's a good example. You have national politicians, activists, writers, thinkers who used to be what they called liberal Democrats who have been shunned by their party because they're not leftists, meaning they're not anti-American, which you have to be to be a leftist. They're not communists. They're just Americans who have a slightly different approach to Americanism, but they're not anti-American. Those are rational people, and those are the people that we can argue with and debate, and we can actually find a good course of action. You can't do that with a leftist. So people like Tulsi Gabbard, like Naomi Wolf, uh, like uh, Alan Dershowitz, who's been uh, attacked savagely for supporting uh, Donald Trump in his uh, legal battles because he didn't waver in his position. He was supporting the Clintons in the same way they were supporting Trump. Well, you can't do that in the liberal Democrat community anymore. Uh, 
he's not hired. No one will speak to him either except the so-called conservatives and the Republicans. These people are good examples of those who can pull the traditional Democrats and the liberals away from their communist leftist party uh, platform now and towards something that is actually more rational uh, and, and largely fearless. Now, why do we see less fear in Europe than we do here in the United States? This is a question I've been wrestling with for a couple of years. I, I believe, and this is somewhat of a paradox, that as I said earlier, the media has really driven to a large degree this fear, fear mongering in the United States. In Europe, even though there is less diversity of media, meaning that a lot of the media is state controlled, it's, it's, it's fairly monotonous, uh, and it's mostly socialist and left leaning, the media is not fear mongering in Europe, largely speaking. There, there is exceptions, obviously, but there does not seem to be a goal to incite fear within the European media establishment. They certainly want to push for socialism and to some degree leftism, but they're not driven by an emotional goal and they're not driven by a goal of control. And there is less collusion in that sense between government, corporations, and media than there is here in the U.S. We have essentially a, a, a trifecta of, uh, of Wiccans and witchcraft in the United States. There's this collusive power between those three camps, corporations, government, and media, that have driven this pandemic of fear since 2020. You don't see that in Europe. So I think that Europe is somewhat protected, and Europeans in general are protected from the fear-mongering because they don't have that dealer, which is the media, that gives them this constant daily feeding of fear. They're also less addicted to media and phones than we are. When I went through Poland, when I went through Croatia, Macedonia, Bosnia, Herzegovina, uh, and Kosovo, I did not see people attached to their cell phones like I do in the US. They also don't watch television as much. They don't have this Netflix addiction. They read. They actually open up magazines. They read books. They're sitting there reading newspapers on the train and different types of newspapers, you know, a little left intellectually, but they're not fear driven. They're not fear mongering. So I think that there's a still some space for rational discourse left in Europe. I would not have said this a few years ago because I thought that Europe was essentially doomed. Western Europe is still teetering, but Central and Southern and Eastern Europe, those people don't have this media driven fear. And an additional factor in largely in Europe is that they have been somewhat inoculated against dictatorship takeovers because they've just lived through it in the last generation. They've seen death, they've seen genocide, they've seen totalitarianism, they've seen despotism. So they know it, they smell it, they know what it looks like, and they push away from it. Americans have gone soft, we have become naive to it, because in the last generation, we have had absolutely no personal experience of suffering, dictatorship, or despotism. So we do not know the language of totalitarianism anymore. We've lost that ability. We have become uh, essentially languageless in that sort of linguistic domain. And so we've essentially fallen prey to uh, what took over the 20th century in Europe, and now we're reliving it here in the U.S. We are. We're, we're falling prey to that which we used to fight against. Correct. That's yeah. very sad. That's horrible, and it's, it's actually quite frightening. And if we don't turn it around soon, um, it's going to embrace our entire country, and there'll be no point of return. 
we will we will reach a point very soon where I think we're going to only have a binary choice. We're going to have a choice somewhere between November and January of this coming year when we have the next election, which I don't believe will be free or fair of of two options. Uh, one option is to accept the results of the unfree and unfair election, which will be um, to uh, lose all of our freedoms and liberties and live in a de facto police state. We're, we're nine-tenths of the way there already. We're just one-tenth left, which will be the election. That will be option one. Option two will be to have a violent revolution. There is no more middle ground. We're reaching the point where we, we do not have the ability to elect people who represent us. We, are, we have largely lost democracy or the republic, which is the voting process. It's happened in L.A. where we had a corrupt election commission just invalidate 700,000 votes to recall an evil and despicable human being named George Gascon, who's sponsored by uh, George Soros, who's a leftist and who wants to essentially allow for more murders and rapes and the release of, of criminals into the Los Angeles County uh, public streets and deny the rights of victims. That happened just yesterday. Uh, well, I, don't, also... I don't know. I don't know that he wasn't recalled, Mark. It's not so clear. You know, the recall people hired their own signature verifiers to make sure when they turned in those signatures that they had enough. And now suddenly, under the cover of darkness, they would not allow observers to the counting of signatures that suddenly something like 25, 28 percent of the signatures are being rejected. And it's not clear that that actually was a fair uh, adjudication of the process of the recall. That's the problem. So if the people, which is what a recall at its core level is, it's the people speaking uh, en masse to unseat someone that they find despicable, an elected politician, which is George Gascon. If that's no longer possible in the second largest uh, county in the country, Los Angeles with 9 million people, where 70%, 70% of Los Angelinos do not approve of this man, that's what's been shown in polling. If that's no longer possible, if we can't even recall somebody who is an evil, despicable human being that no one supports, 70% don't support, then there's really no hope for the electoral process anymore. And if enough Americans see that and find that to be conclusive this November, there will be no other option except violence and a revolt and a revolution. And that's, I think, where we're heading right now. I don't really see any other way out. You know, it's funny. It reminds me, I was in Brazil many, many years ago. And in certain areas, they have problems with the traffic lights, meaning that people, because they fear stopping, that they'll get robbed, they don't stop it at red lights. And so they go through red lights. And then people in green lights are worried that the opposite traffic is going to run into them because they're not stopping. And so you have people that are slowing down at green lights, worrying about people that are running through red lights. And you have um, you have intersection pandemonium uh, because of the fear for their lives that there isn't um, that there isn't law and order in the streets in this particular area in Brazil. You know, Doc Moranville, our producer, uh, has a very poignant uh, quote, and I'm going to read it. He put it in our chat, and I think it's important. Free people, or for that matter, free media, left to their own devices, free people will seek the idea of freedom while embracing and coddling by a big government, meaning we're attracted to the idea of freedom while at the same time we're looking for government to get bigger and bigger and take care of us. And unfortunately, 
we're we're fighting these battles that we used to fight uh, internally, and the end result is we're becoming a totalitarian state. The the United States' greatest failing, other than lack of courage, uh, appears to be the embracing of the delusion, and it is a delusion, that responsibility for the creation of a good life rests with government. It does not. It rests with you. It rests with your family. It rests with your community, your church, your civic organization. It starts at home. And to the extent that we outsource that, and we've been outsourcing this to a greater degree than, than ever before since the founding of the country, we are, we are doomed. Uh, we cannot. The laws of physics are, are, are no more strong than this. We cannot succeed as a country if we delegate the good and the good doing to our government. It cannot happen. And, and that's really the biggest mistake that I think we've made uh, in the last five to 10 years. So I, I want to wrap this up uh, two ways. One is I understand your 12th step in the book is, uh, is, is worthy for a discussion. And I want you to end with some, with some good news. Give us some hope. Share, share your 12th step and give us some hope for the future of the United States and particularly, particularly this pandemic of fear that we've uh, just come through. Well, I think if there's any hope left to be had, it's, it's hope at a local level. I don't really think that we have uh, any reason to be optimistic that we're going to see a national recovery first. I think we have to see it on an individual and local level to begin with. And that's why I wrote the book. Uh, that's why I called it a personal and a national recovery. I think individuals throughout the country need to start working on themselves and their communities and from there grow a sense of power and entitlement, influence and uh, pressure, really, to be placed on adjacent communities. We need to see not urban America, but the rest of America start to stand up and start to act. If we can do that, then we might be able to form some form of a partial recovery that perhaps over time will help to uh, alleviate some of the problems in the urban areas. And if we can start to uh, reallocate resources, if people will move away from some of these blighted cities into smaller towns and rural areas and strengthen them, then we might be able to actually contain some of the problems. I think that's really a reasonable and rational hope. I do not think that it is reasonable and rational to expect that the urban America will reform in the next generation. I, I really don't. I think it has to come from the small towns, the middle-sized cities, and the individual communities. That's really where our um, potential rests and lies. Well, Mark, I look forward to reading the book when it comes out. Where can people find your book once it's released? So the book will be available on multiple purchase sites. And for simplicity, what I've done is direct anyone who's interested in looking at the book, reading more about it, and perhaps buying it to my literary website, which is dissidentmd.com. That's dissidentmd.com. On that site, there's links to my Substack, to my Twitter, to my Facebook, uh, no longer LinkedIn since I've been deplatformed, as well as my first book, Freedom, uh, sorry, uh, United States of Fear, and now the second book, Freedom from Fear. And, and for our listening audience that went through the Los Angeles Unified School District, can you spell dissident for us? <laughs> so... <laughs> So a, so a dissident is someone who today in America offers 
any opinion which is not considered acceptable by CNN. And dissident is spelled D-I-S-S-I-D-E-N-T. So that stands for a dissenting opinion or dissident medical doctor, dissidentmd.com. Got it. Well, Mark, great to be with you again on another episode of Informed Dissent, available on all podcast outlets, including uh, Apple Podcast and Spotify. And I look forward to being with you again soon. Thank you. You've been listening to Informed Dissent with Dr. Jeff Barkey, board-certified primary care physician, and Dr. Mark McDonald, board-certified child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist. Informed Dissent the intersection of healthcare and politics.